Coming up on today's show... 137 rangers that we know of lost their lives in the past year. 31% are actually rangers being murdered. Rangers from around the world are in desperate need of our assistance. To commemorate World Ranger Day, we chat to International Ranger Federation President Chris Galliers. Then... Essentially, the, the COVID-19 crisis poses uh, something of a perfect storm for conservation because it brings together a suite of challenges. Peter Lindsay, director of WCN's Lion Recovery Fund, discusses his recent paper highlighting the effects of COVID-19 on African conservation efforts. But first, conservation news making headlines from around the world. We have been stealing the future from our children. Challenges of conservation and combating climate change are connected. Corruption is being created by wildlife crime. Speciesism is very much the same as racism or sexism. We must rethink our relationship with wildlife, the environment and each other. Join us as we uncover the innovative, unifying and urgent solutions we need to protect the planet from ourselves. This is the art of conservation. I'm Simon Borchard and welcome back to this, our second episode of The Art of Conservation. Joining me in studio once again is Peter Borchard and Shannon Elizabeth. Guys, welcome back. Episode two. Peter's joining us remotely today. Once again, we just want to thank Mantis, uh, Mantis Collection for helping us make this podcast possible today. Uh, Mantis Luxury Hotels, Eco Lodges and Waterways are travel experiences located all over the world. Sustainable travelers have been enjoying ecotourism, safaris and adventure travels with Mantis since the year 2000. Each property is committed to conserving the environment, so leave behind the mass production of sameness and seek out the rarities that make travel worthwhile. Please visit mantiscollection.com to be inspired and book your next trip today. Now, they've actually been really, really cool. So anybody listening... Uh, uh, if you sign up to our newsletter, you will receive your 20% discount to go to the Syringit Tented Luxury Camp in the Serengeti, um, courtesy of, of Mantis. Now, embarrassingly, I have yet to see the migration. Um, but Peter, you've seen it a couple of times, haven't you? Um, yes, indeed. And it, what a wonderful event it is. Uh, our old friend, the uh, world-famous uh, wildlife photographer, Daryl Balfour, always refers to it as, as the greatest show on earth, and I think he's pretty close to it. The Serengeti Mara migration is so much more than the event that happens around about this time of year, and that is the big crossing of the rivers and the crocodiles and the, the lions and so on. It's very exciting, but I would just like to remind everybody that that wonderful system in, in East Africa is, is worth a visit far beyond the migration itself. And let's not forget, too, that the migration is, is not just that single event. It carries on the whole year in a great big circle as the, as the wildebeest and zebras and other animals move around the whole system. So it's, it's the culmination of a, a, very, a very exciting cycle in nature. It's definitely a, a bucket list for me. And uh, well, I'm, I think I'm, that 20% do. discount applies to us because I haven't seen it either. I really want to go. <laughs> well, you need to get cracking in because it's, it's a must. Yeah, it, it really is. And I, I feel if you're going to do a bucket list trip like that, or, you know, what is a bucket list trip for so many people is that, you know, do it right. Do it with reputable um, travel organizations that have got conservation at their heart. So um, once again, sign up to our newsletter. Uh, the link is in the, is in the episode notes and you'll receive your 20% discount code to book your trip. And who knows, maybe we'll see you there. 
Okay, so moving on with today's show. Uh, today's show is really special because it coincides with World Ranger Day, um, a day that we get a chance to acknowledge and recognize the almost 750,000 plus rangers around the world who are living and working in extremely tough conditions to keep our wild places safe. And uh, later in this episode, you, there's a wonderful interview I did with uh, Chris Galliers, the president of the International Rangers uh, Federation. And he said something that was quite remarkable to me, was the wild places on the planet are almost 30%, or the, the ambition is 30% of the landmass of the world dedicated to conservation areas. Yet that entire area is under the control or under the, the protection of 1.5 million people. That's it. We're asking at the top, top, top estimations, 1.5 million rangers to protect 30% of the planet. So that kind of gives you an idea of just how important these people are. But Peter, you did a wonderful acknowledgement of, of World Ranger Day in your editorial for, for Rhino Review uh, yesterday. Do you want to talk about that? Yes, I would like to, and I'd like to add my tribute to all the rangers everywhere and to thank them for the wonderful work they do. I mean, as you said, Simon, they're the front line, the first responders, the defenders of the wild. Far too many of them also pay the ultimate price in the course of their duties. And we know that without them, the fabric of conservation would fray and tear and fall apart, and the wild places of the planet would if not lost, be certainly very badly compromised. So I, I find that a frightening figure, that that, that figure of a mere 750,000 people looking after 30% of the planet. Um, it, it doesn't make any sense at all. No, it doesn't. Just another stat that, uh, that Chris told me is that in, in this last year alone, 137 rangers have lost their lives. And what was staggering is that 31% of those um, have been murdered. Yeah, I mean, I think today mm -hmm. it's also about honoring those that have fallen. So true. And remembering, you know, a lot of rangers, when they got into being rangers, it wasn't nearly as dangerous as it is today. A lot of rangers weren't necessarily originally trained for anti-poaching, but that's what they're doing. And they've had to learn how to to do a job that's not necessarily what they thought they signed up for. So it's become quite dangerous, especially if they're protecting an Indeed. area that has rhino. Yeah, I think that's a very good point, um, Shan, yeah, really. But, you know, I'd like to use this opportunity to pay tribute to a man who, to my mind, epitomizes the spirit and character of the ranger. And that is the late Dr. Ian Player. Yes. Now, golfing enthusiasts around the world will be familiar with another player, Ian's brother Gary, who is one of the all-time greats of golf. And Ian, I think, made an even greater mark to my mind, but in the world of conservation. He was a towering figure. I knew him as a kind, understanding, modest, encouraging, and totally, totally authentic man. He never failed to attribute all he was to another great conservationist and ranger, his friend and mentor, Makuhu Intombela. Um, but, you know, make no mistake, behind Ian's gentle facade, there was a man of real steel, resolute, determined, always to speak and act for the wilderness that he loved. And I personally wish I'd known him better. And I wish I'd spent more time listening to his wisdom. For, you know, I don't know if many people will know this, but he was a great follower of the philosopher Carl Jung. 
and he had a huge regard for the indigenous uh, cultures and their wisdom and their relationships with the natural world. And then another thing, I'm not going to go into it because it can be read in so many other places. Um, it is simply a fact that we have white rhinos today in their present abundance, notwithstanding the ravages of recent poaching, and that is in no small measure a tribute to this wonderful man. And game ranging is a dangerous business, and I, d I didn't have the, the total, but I knew that more than 100 or so um, rangers lose their lives often very violently every year. And I thought if, if I could just be indulged for another minute, I would like to honor them all with a quote from Maya Angelou's wonderful poem, When Great Trees Fall. And she wrote, When great trees fall, rocks on distant hills shudder, lions hunker down in tall grasses, and even elephants lumber after safety. And when great souls die, after a period, peace blooms, slowly and always irregularly. Spaces fill with a kind of soothing electric vibration. Our senses restored, never to be the same, whisper to us. They existed. They existed. We can be. Be and be better. For they existed. Wow. So that's, that's it for me on Game Rangers today, Sai. Uh, yeah, and I think that's that's a that's a spectacular uh, tribute, Peter. Thank you. Um, I think a real reminder that we we get to fight for wild places and wild animals because of people whose names we will never know, but who have literally yeah. given their lives so that we can carry on the good fight to protect the planet. So. From, from all of us at Art of Conservation uh, to every ranger, past and present, thank you. I would also like to, to say um, there, there's another quote that we heard Jane Goodall say the other day that I would just like to repeat. Oh, yes, yeah. Rangers are uncertain of what the future is, and yet wildlife depends on them. And any of us who care about wildlife, we depend on them too. And the rangers depend upon us. Yeah, and, that's so true. Yeah, I just thought that was quite beautiful and something for people to remember. Yeah, and it's critically important to remember that um, these brave men and women are out there for all of us. It's not just South Africans looking after Kruger Park for South Africans. or It's, it's for the world. And we need to get behind them and help them in any way we can, whether it's sharing their stories, whether it is acknowledging and thanking them, or if you are in, in a position to do so and you have the means to do so, make a donation of any size to reputable organizations because they are radically under-resourced and they, and they do, um, as per Jane's message, need us now more than ever. So again, this day is dedicated to them. Thank you. Okay, uh, moving on. Shannon, you've got something interesting which um, you wanted to share with us today. Yeah, so apparently Americans are receiving mystery seeds in the mail, uh, mostly from China, some from Uzbekistan. Uh, all over the country, people have just received these sealed uh, seeds and nobody's ordered them. Nobody knows why they came. They were quite often labeled as jewelry, toys, or wireless earbuds. So 
Obviously, a spokesperson said the USDA is working with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Customs and Border Protection and state agricultural departments to prevent the illegal entry of prohibited seeds and protect U.S. agriculture from invasive pests and noxious weeds. I mean, obviously, we don't know what's in these seeds or on them, if it could spread a disease, be harmful to livestock, be harmful to local plants by introducing foreign plants. Like there's just so many things that could go wrong with these. So I just thought it was important to talk about um, because number one thing is people need to not open them and not plant them. Yeah, it's a remarkable story because why? That's the thing that keep, it keeps coming back to me is, is, is why? What is behind this? I don't want to be the conspiracy theorist and the, and the gossip mongery here, but it, it does feel that there is some kind of nefarious agenda behind the, the, the random arrival of, of seedlings. Yeah, I don't, I don't think this was by accident. There's definitely something behind it. And I think that's what you have to think and you have to handle it with care and turn them into the USDA and let them do their discovery on them, but just don't plant them. It, there's nothing good that can come from that. Yeah, it is going to be interesting to see what comes out uh, you know, from this, but it, it does bring something to light, which I think we don't spend enough time talking about, is that we talk about you know, the illegal wildlife trade and we talk about the fauna that is trafficked around the world. And we don't spend a lot of time talking about the flora that is trafficked and sent around the world. So whether that is beautiful exotic timbers that are decimated and, and you've got places like Madagascar, which are stripped bare of some of the most beautiful old trees, which are indeed a habitat for a variety of animals. And there are huge consequences for seeds, for trees, for various flora to end up in the wrong ecologies on the wrong side of the world. There, there are consequences to that. So we should just be mindful that when we when we think about trade or import or export, um, there is a there is another less less obvious side which does deserve attention, I think. I mean, I know a lot of the land here, people are always trying to cut out alien plants and vegetation. Even the wood that we burn, we try to just buy wood that's alien so that we're actually helping the local uh, yeah, ecology. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Get it out. Alien invasion and um, species are, is, you know, is one of the biggest problems in, in uh, ecosystem management around the world. But I'd just like to add another point to that. And, um, you know, just about any worthwhile medicine that we have in the world today has been ultimately derived from a plant product. A plant is sitting out there that's helped us in so many, with so many diseases and conditions. And so, you know, the world's great uh, natural environments are very much in danger of being exploited from a bioprospecting point of view. And countries need to be very aware of who's doing what in them and for what reasons. And just another little point on the, uh, the detection of people sending plant products around the world. I think probably that all nations, uh, the US included, could take a leaf out of the Aussies book because the Australians are absolutely ruthless about anything approaching a food product coming into their country, uh, such as their, their, their worry about um, agricultural um, degradation. 
So, yeah, I think it's a huge topic and one that we'd have to be very aware of. <laughs> I mean, it's funny you talk about sort of stopping things going into Australia. Thankfully, the same measures keep a lot of things in Australia because I don't think there is a, 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 a region of the world which has a higher concentration of poisonous or dangerous animals in Australia. Isn't that right? <laughs> so, well, certainly when it comes to snakes and spiders, they, they rule the roost. They really do. Actually, you know, on that, you were, you were chatting um, before, before the show about the effect of the Australian wildfires. You know, we've, we've, we've put them out, but we haven't reversed the damage, and the damage just seems to be absolutely radical. Yeah, a report that's just come out estimates that nearly 3 billion animals were killed or displaced during those Aussie fires. And it's been declared as one of the world's worst wildlife disasters ever. If we cast our minds back to, I think it was from about July last year through to March this year, those fires impacted far more animals than were previously estimated. You know, we know that they killed 33 people, absolute tragedy, and more than 3,000 homes were destroyed. But the toll on animals was far more devastating. As I said, nearly 3 billion animals, that's reptiles, birds, frogs, mammals, were killed or displaced during the bushfire. I mean, I'm just looking at the numbers here, and, and they're, worth, they're worth mentioning. 143 million mammals, 2.46 billion reptiles, 180 million birds, and 51 million frogs are believed to have been impacted. That is, yeah, is dramatic. Um, but, but also, I mean, in, in that, and I think we've, we've got to give a bit of a, a shout out to organizations like Wild Ark, and I know that there were others involved. Um, and a friend of ours, uh, the photographer David Yarrow, did a phenomenal fundraising um, effort. And I believe that they've raised in excess of one and a half million dollars to go to the, the rehabilitation of these areas. Because the one thing it does set out for me is if that's the number that lost their lives, the number that must be injured and still require care and attention must be draining coffers all over. So it's oh, worth checking it out. Yeah. Um, if there's two very reputable people and organizations that, um, that could still use your help, check out David Yarrow and Wild Ark. They're doing some fantastic work down there. Um, and still need our yeah, help by all accounts. David's photograph of that sadly burnt koala bear clinging to a tree, I, I think that will live with me for the rest of my life. Yeah. It really was a sort of soul-scorching image. Jeepers, isn't it just? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, that the, the, the thing that it brings to mind too is that, I mean, that, that fire was unbelievable. But you add to that the fires that happened in California, in Spain and Portugal, and I believe at the moment huge fires ravaging huge parts of, of Siberia. And, um, you know, you begin then to start really thinking about fires, climate change, and what is happening to the world. Yeah. Um, and we know that the, the big fires in the, the southern hemisphere are affected by the El Nino phase, which is a typically hot and dry season, which leads to worse uh, bushfire conditions. Mm. And so I think it's, um, I think for a future show, perhaps, Simon, we could get some people in on climate change and just look at the effect that these great big weather systems have on climate patterns. 
they're natural occurrences. We know that. Yeah. But uh, but the changes in the atmosphere that that happen impact the ocean temperatures and currents, and then this, this, the system oscillates between warm and cold, the El Nino and El Nina, and that has huge impact throughout Africa and Australia and South America. I mean, I, I do think is yes, we need to talk about about climate change because I. I feel that we quite often talk about conservation and climate change in in isolation. We, we we talk about them in their own sort of verticals, and they are inextricably linked because the the practical ongoing campaigns to to conserve land and habitat and species is effectively providing the world with a with a larger set of lungs to try and combat the effects of climate change or to dare I say it even reverse the effects of climate change so they are very very linked and we should talk and spend more time talking about the link between these these two massive massive subjects and and i think the link between these massive subjects and the the inability of the political leaders of this world who are so hardbound by their four five year terms that absolutely nothing happens 100%. and it drives me to distraction that we can see it every day and you think we can get the world leaders to really move and look beyond their own short term selfish interests yeah put it on the shoulders of a 16 year old girl Yep. Yeah, yep. It's it's an indictment on us on us all, and we, we we should be a lot more demanding and a lot more aggressive in in how we uh, uh, expect our leaders and demand of our leaders to take on these subjects and actually deliver meaningful exchanges and meaningful implementations um, and 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 really shift the needle because there is nothing happening at the moment. I suppose onto some better news or, or some good news, Vietnam bans imports of wild animals to reduce risk of future pandemics. I picked up on this, I believe it was around about the 21st of March. There was a statement made, I think I read it in The Guardian at the time, that uh, Vietnam had decided that uh, basically enough was enough and they were going to start to make inroads into the wet markets, into the, the wildlife trade and uh, start to bring about new legislation that would do that. Now, we've seen that a bunch of times out of Asia, which have just been sort of platitudes given by countries under scrutiny at that time, and we don't often see something come of it. So some months later, it's it's encouraging to, to hear that they have banned all imports of wild animals, dead or alive, and have announced a crackdown on the illegal wildlife markets as part of their efforts to reduce the risk of future pandemics such as COVID-19. And uh, we only hope that this can be a precedent for the region to pass equal legislation and to really step up. But there's something in this as well that I think we we put a lot of pressure on the receiving countries, on the, on the countries of consumption when it comes to the illegal wildlife trade. And what I would like to see is more African countries standing up and making mention of what they're going to do to stop the animals leaving the country. We spend a lot of time talking about sustainable use and how good it would be for economies and trade, trade, trade. We must trade. Yet there is near silence on what are we doing to stop the illegal trade in light of the pandemic, in light of what's going on. So I think we we, we really need to, um, once again, demand of our leaders as to why we're not seeing enough action on this um, in countries in source countries and and consumer countries. 
you're, you're quite you're quite right, Simon. You know, and uh, yes, we know that, that Vietnam is a conduit for wildlife contraband into China. And you know, if China and Vietnam get their acts together, um, there's no doubt that these two countries could deal a, a wildlife uh, trade a, a body blow. But as you quite rightly say, it goes beyond that, uh, Africa. And uh, I saw a, a very interesting report from Traffic. Um, it's a UK-based nonprofit about the Brazilian Amazon, which has been drained of millions of wild animals by criminal networks. And it really is huge. The, the report states the pervasive and uncontrolled capture of wild animals and plants, and you know, they pick up on the plants, for the illegal trade is having grave consequences for Brazilian biodiversity, the national economy, the rule of law, and good governance. And we, we live in a world that while some of the animals are seized and some of the low-level smugglers are caught, the organizers of this global criminal enterprise are very rarely caught and brought to justice. Mm. And, you know, we've recently seen the same thing happen in, in Africa, in South Africa, yeah. And to those of us sitting here in Cape Town, it, it has a horribly familiar ring to it. And there, again, there was a recent report called The Breaking Point uncovering South Africa's shameful live wildlife trade with China. And South Africa has become the largest exporter of live wild animals to Asia, mm. where they're mostly doomed to be eaten, abandoned zoos, used as medical potions, and in scientific experiments. It's, it's an appalling, appalling state. And very often the legal trade acts as a cover-up for the illicit trade. So when it comes to pro-wildlife trade advocates, including CITES, which is the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, is that they say that only the illegal trade is the problem. This is a complete misconception in my view, mm. as huge damage can be done and laid at the door of the legal wildlife trade. 100%. I mean, if we look at the numbers, if um, and correct yeah. me on this, is that I believe that the estimations of the legal wildlife trade exceeds $300 million a year, where the illegal trade is is estimated at the top ranges of somewhere around $24 billion a year. So, it, so, yeah, so even, even just looking at those, to assume that the legal wildlife trade is perfectly regulated and has done a perfect job of managing th this trade just seems totally illogical. Oh, I've, 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 I, I can't get my head around it. I, I think that there are a lot of questions that need to be, to be asked in this space. Well, I'd also like to clarify some stuff here because I was looking up, as you guys were talking about this, on Monga Bay, which we know is very reputable, it says anticipated new restrictions on wildlife trade in Vietnam fall short of a ban. After a delay of several months on July 23rd, the government finally released a directive aimed at strengthening enforcement of existing rules governing the wildlife trade, but not banning the trade outright as conservationists had hoped. The directive's key provisions include an order to stop the already illegal activities of importing living and dead wild animals, etc., until further direction from the prime minister or there's permission by the prime minister in special circumstances. And it also says that it excludes aquatic species for production and processing for food and animal feed. So part of this for me just sounds like it's, it's like they're wanting a little bit of good press, but they're, they're kind of yeah. dancing around it. 
they're not really putting the laws in place that we we had all hoped for. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right, and and we have to wherever it happens in the world uh, to keep the pressure on, because um, these things are slow to happen, and I think we need to encourage where they are happening and to build on those things. So I see this as a, a brick in the wall. But the wall needs many, many more bricks to be effective. The one thing that does come from it is that there are clear signs that the global pressure to address the trade is being heard, that there is a reaction, that there is an awareness that something needs to be tightened or controlled. So if we read through it, to my mind, Vietnam is saying there is a problem and we need to engage. Whether, whether we're getting into the semantics of it is an outright ban, it is an outright ban, they've acknowledged the need. Perhaps it's a thin blanket on a cold night, but I, I do take some comfort in, in a global acknowledgement of these issues from critical countries in the value chain. Well, I think those, those who were promoting or still do promote a, a legal rhino horn uh, trade, I'm sure I'm right in saying that at times they've imagined a sort of bipartisan uh, agreement between South Africa and Vietnam and, you know, to hell with the rest of the world and controls. They're just going to do a deal. Well, I would hope that something like this absolutely puts the kibosh on that kind of thinking because they do specifically mention rhino horn and pangolin scales and things like that in the in the directive there's another little quote here that might be worth mentioning it says the directive does not include the domestic use of wildlife for medicine or as pets it's also yeah. unclear which control or management will be put in place for the domestic legal trade of wildlife and wildlife farming the trade of legal wildlife products in places such as wildlife farms are also a cause of zoonotic outbreaks. Yeah, so, yeah I'm kind of yeah. with Shannon on this. Just, this just sounds like some politicking and smoke and mirrors. I think we need to, as I said, you've got to take the, uh, the little nuggets of things that come out and say, we've maybe got a little chink here and we've got to keep working at it. Yeah. But, you know, I, I wrote in a recent editorial, you know, and I, I posed the question, is it time to stop trading wildlife full stop? And and I tend to be emotionally and, and um, spiritually in, in that camp. But certainly it's a time to reconsider our relationship with nature and to apply our minds more effectively to developing a better and what I've called a more compassionate paradigm, one that's more equitable for people, wildlife and the planet. I think it's a it's a conversation that that needs to go very very deep into the economics of conservation, the ethics of conservation, and the the brand equity that it affords the countries that are the custodians of the the vast majority of the world's wildlife and wild places. And on that yeah. subject, Peter Lindsay, uh, who's director of the Lion Recovery Fund and a very respected scientist and researcher has convened a, a pretty impressive group of, of scientists and, and conservationists. Some of them are pro-use, and so there's a, there's a separation for me there. But nonetheless, they have released what I believe to be an extremely worthwhile read and a very well-articulated representation of the impact of COVID-19 on African conservation. And the reason why I bring it up now is because if we are looking at alternative 
economies, alternative revenue streams that hopefully will in future go a long way to better defend our wildlife and wild places. The decimation of the tourism industry has exposed the the massive reliance we have on tourism dollar to to fund necessary conservation. And uh, I managed to get hold of Peter, and at, the, and at the end of this episode, there's an interesting discussion that we have. We just touch on it briefly, but we're looking to, to have a far more in-depth discussion in the future about the, the effects and looking to the existing paradigm for a solution, and the solution is not there. We need to diversify um, sustainable revenue generation that does not rely on hunting, tourism, or any associated, because it is not sustainable, uh, economically sustainable. It's not robust. Um, it's been knocked over by the pandemic, and that's of huge concern. So what do we do? What do we do going forward? And I think that you're right. If we're looking at this crazy, crazy trade, and then we're looking at it against the backdrop of countries in, in need, African countries in need, as a result of the drop in tourism dollar, there is a lot of work that needs to be done there. And I think it's a a global responsibility. It's not just a continental responsibility to find those solutions. Yeah, indeed. You know, and I think we, we often forget the ecosystem services that the, the wilderness already provides. This business of saying, well, if it stays, it has to pay, it really, really annoys me. Because, you know, if you, if you consider that the estimated annual economic value of 17 ecosystem services, most of which are not traded in the market and therefore not considered in the traditional GPD, uh, GDP sorry, and other economic statistics. They reckon that it's about $38 trillion a year that the environment actually puts into the world, society, business, people, $38 trillion a year Remarkable number. is the value of those services. And yet, how much do we? It refers back to the number of of, of of ranges that we have in the world. How much resource do we put back into protecting that thirty eight trillion dollars a year? Absolutely nothing in the great scheme of things, and that has to change. Yeah, totally agree with you. And on that note. We're going to round it up for today. Thank you again for listening. We invite you to please join the conversation on, on social media at Art of Conservation on Facebook and on Instagram. Please sign up to our newsletter uh, at our website at artofconservation.com. And please stick around for two fascinating um, interviews that carry on for the conversation of World Ranger Day and also this, this debate on the impact of COVID-19 on African conservation. Thank you so much for listening. We must rethink our relationship with wildlife, the environment, and each other. Join us as we uncover the innovative, unifying, and urgent solutions we need to protect the planet from ourselves. This is the art of conservation. Chris Gallias, president of the International Rangers Federation, has a tough job of coordinating the global ranger community to bring about better working conditions and recognition of conservation's first responders. I spoke with Chris about the challenges as we celebrate World Ranger Day. Chris, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Um, but this year seems to be a little bit more important as we look to World Ranger Day. What have been the biggest challenges facing rangers under the current pandemic and how are we going to get out of it? 
Thanks, Simon. It's great to be here. And um, it really is, uh, you know, we celebrate the 31st of July as World Ranger Day, and we have been doing for many years as the International Ranger Federation. This has helped put rangers and the ranger agenda onto the map globally. And uh, certainly this year, it does mark a very different year for rangers um, in terms of what they've experienced and had to deal with, um, starting off. And without losing sight of that is that 137 rangers that we know of lost their lives in the past year, which is the highest number that we've, that we've had. And with that is about a large proportion of them are actually homicides. So 31% are actually rangers being murdered in the field. So to us, that's, that's extremely concerning and um, distressing. And it just shows the sort of vulnerability of rangers um, and what they're doing out there is dangerous and seems to be getting more dangerous. Um, so that's definitely something that we, we need to address. And then obviously the pandemic has arrived and really added a, another layer of complexity and challenges. Uh, as you said, the, the revenue streams of many of these conservation protected areas out there are really being hamstrung by the fact that uh, the tourism element has dried up their funding resources. And it's not just the tourism element, it's the ability to provide support, which comes through many different channels. You know, the tourism is one, NGOs are, are another, their ability to, to travel and provide support. All of that has been hamstrung in under COVID. Each country uh, obviously has its own challenges to deal with. But to be honest, the, the biggest thing is the, the, the security of rangers. It has been a challenge in terms of their ability to carry out their operations, but also the ability to carry out operations under these conditions. So obviously facing, in some cases, increased threats from COVID itself and not having sufficient support in terms of the right equipment to deal with it. But they are there trying to address and, and uh, work under those conditions. And then obviously the other threats that we're starting to seeing, the increased levels of poaching because of the fact that people around these, what we say, sort of resource-rich uh, protected areas are hungry. So, you know, poaching for meat, uh, poaching for commercial trade to get increased revenue because jobs are, have been lost. So, they, you know, the sort of breakdown of economies around protected areas is really starting to have an impact on ranges as well in many parts of the world. That's certainly, you know, something that I keep reminding myself of is that we often refer to the rangers in the context of their ability to protect uh, the wildlife and to protect those habitats. But we don't often spend enough time talking about how do we protect the rangers? You know, how do we protect the protectors? And I think that uh, in a webinar that we were both a part of last week, uh, Jane Goodall touched on something, and, I'm, and I can't remember her exact words, but it was essentially along the lines of wildlife needs the rangers, but right now the rangers need us. And I, and I look to organizations like the International Ranger Federation who play a pivotal role in elevating the awareness of rangers, the plight of the rangers, but also the status of the rangers. What is the objective of IRF? Yeah, it's actually interesting you raised that uh, that statement uh, from Jane in terms of what she said, because I actually wrote it down and it was, we need rangers and they need us. Yeah. That was so true. It was, yeah, it really resonated with me um, because of the current situation. And yeah, the International Ranger Federation was, uh, you know, established on the 31st of July 
1992, hence World Ranger Day, by a group of people who, who wanted exactly that. Um, the ability of to consolidate a sector, to look at improving the sector, profiling the sector, but also to provide space for that ranger to ranger uh, support and knowledge sharing as well, because no one understands a ranger better than a ranger uh, in terms of what they do and have to go through. And so, you know, whether you're a ranger south or north of the equator, you face many of the same sort of challenges. And and we see that with the, at gatherings of World Ranger Congresses, which we host um, every three years, where rangers from around the world set up relationships and those are long lasting and it's, it really is a sort of a, a coming together of like-minded people and you can see that in terms of the the international range of Federation currently, um, you know, it was developed to advance and promote um, throughout the world community the range of profession because of its critical role in conserving natural and cultural resources as well, which is very important in many protected areas. And also to be the global voice for rangers, uh, which is important many times, you know, at grassroots level, sort of boots on the ground level, um, the ability to amplify the challenges that uh, they face they, they, on many channels to do that. And that is certainly one of the IRF's objectives. And then to obviously promote the support of rangers, try to establish partnerships and strengthen those partnerships who then can implement support to rangers on the ground. And as I said, it's a sort of a, a family of rangers as well as a collective, as a network, a support network, I think is also a very important part of the IRF's mission. I mean, I'd, one of the things that really struck me in, in, in chatting last week and just, you know, on the periphery of, of just watching and observing and trying to see where the best places are to help progress the agenda of IRF and, and rangers at large. And I was really encouraged to see the level of collaboration between um, the various ranger uh, entities or organizations around the world. There's a, there's a strong collaborative focus that I think the rest of conservation could really learn from at the moment. In pulling all of that together, I mean, how, how many people are we actually talking about here that, that are reliant on assistance right now? Yeah, difficult to say the exact number of ranges and how many people need assistance. I think there's a lot of detail. We've been kind of grappling with that because it seems like such a simple question, which which actually it's arose not, at, really at uh, the again, previous yeah. uh, World Ranger Congress in 2016 in Colorado, where, where a couple of us said, well, how many ranges are there? And that seems like a simple question. But when you start looking at, first of all, defining a ranger, is quite challenging. A ranger, in terms of the work diversity of roles that they play in different regions, makes it a very broad spectrum of who a ranger is, which is fine. But it does mean that trying to identify who a ranger is in, from a desktop exercise is quite challenging. And then you've got other levels of ranges as well, which are critically important, which are the indigenous and community ranges as well. Yeah. Uh, and those those numbers are not easy to identify and locate, and so because they're not they sometimes not part of the sort of formal employment of ranger. So per country, we've been working at it, and it's an ongoing effort. But I think we've come a long way, and out of that research which we we presented last year, uh, our initial findings is that we looked at about seven hundred fifty thousand rangers that we know of, but 
certainly where, where we know there are some gaps. And through those gaps, we're estimating probably between 1 and 1.5 million ranges out there. And that number was put into perspective when basically you've got that many people, which is a small number, protecting just over 20% of the world's surface area or tasks to do that. And then you realize the enormity of the challenge that they're facing. Basically, the world is asking that small number of people to protect that very important part of the planet. Mm. And hopefully we can grow that to 30%, which is the targets being set Mm. for the next decade by 2030 to 30% under protection. Right now, what can people do to help you this World Ranger Day? Yeah, I think don't lose sight of finding the knowledge to understand the threat that rangers are facing uh, and then look locally to see what intervention you can provide regionally and also globally. So obviously globally through the International Ranger Federation, we very closely, we are with the Thin Green Line Foundation, who is the charity arm of the International Ranger Federation. So you can go to the Thin Green Line Foundation website and donate and support rangers. We are channeling funding. Obviously, there's a huge push to provide support to rangers now because of the COVID situation. Uh, and we, we see that it's not going to go away in a hurry. There's going to be a lag time in terms of the support that's going to be needed. So, yes, that's an immediate need that we have right now. Within that is just to keep um, operations going, uh, keep rangers on the ground to provide job security is our starting point. And then, as I say, we've got regional associations, um, the European Ranger Federation, the Asian uh, Ranger Federation, as well as the Game Ranger Association of Africa, who are members of the International uh, Ranger Federation, and we work closely with them, and they are implementing projects, and one can go onto their websites and provide support that way as well. So there, there's many different channels. At the same time, just to touch on uh, the collaborations that are happening right now, you know, the, the upside of COVID has really brought people together to focus their attention on rangers and what rangers, the value of Rangers. And I think that's that's one positive that we can draw out of the current situation. There's a lot of working together. We're put, putting in a lot of effort into developing plans to address the short and the long-term challenges that we're facing at the moment. That's amazing. Um, Chris, thank you so much for your time and I look forward to, to staying in touch and, and chatting again soon. Yeah, just in this position, we wish we could do more, but we thank them on this day for everything that they're doing. Amazing work. Chris, thank you so much. Peter Lindsay, director of the Lion Recovery Fund, has collaborated with 22 other leading conservationists, researchers, and scientists to deliver a paper that explores the potential impact of COVID-19 across the African continent. For a region so reliant on tourism, it exposes some critical questions we must ask if we are to future-proof Africa against future pandemics and economic catastrophes. I chatted with Peter earlier this week. Peter, thank you so much for for joining me this morning. It's quite an interesting time. We're looking at World Ranger Day this week, um, and that brings a focus on how people are are impacted by conservation and conservation challenges. And it's very difficult to put all of these things on the table without the, the umbrella of COVID and the impact of the pandemic across the continent. Recently, uh, you've authored a paper with, with your esteemed colleagues on the impacts of COVID-19 across the continent. 
It is a remarkable paper, and we will have uh, reference or links to the paper in our, in our episode notes. Um, but at summary levels, what are the biggest challenges that we're likely to face in the wake of COVID-19? Um, yeah, thanks, thanks for that and for the kind words about the paper. Essentially, the, the COVID-19 crisis poses uh, what we call a, perhaps a cliche phrase, but something of a perfect storm for conservation because it brings together a suite of challenges, namely a reduction in funding for conservation as a result of the collapse of tourism and the economic downturns and the stock market volatility. Obviously, the stock market has recovered, but it's still super volatile and, and certain sectors of it are, are very depressed. So we're definitely seeing a reduction in funding, particularly for the, the wildlife authorities have been severely impacted, really, really severely impacted. So that's one problem. Point two is a, a reduction in the operational activities of conservation agencies. Normally, anti-poaching has, has been allowed to continue as an essential service, but to a large extent, community engagement efforts have come to a halt or been drastically reduced because of restrictions and concerns around disease transmission. And as you know, community engagement is a critical part of contemporary conservation efforts. And then thirdly, um, we expect and are seeing, to varying extents in varying places, an elevation of conservation threats. And this comes about for a number of reasons partly because of greater unemployment, um, economic hardship, and also in certain parts of the continent, we're seeing an, an influx of people from urban areas to their rural homes because of the economic downturns and job losses and so forth. And that puts pressure on wildlife and wildlife areas. And in particular, we're concerned about increase in bushmeat poaching, which we certainly are seeing in some places. Yeah, there seems to be a, a remarkable spike in that. And I think the lockdown certainly in, in a South African context has halted the incursions into protected areas and, and the poaching instances at best seem to have stabilized or in some regions gone down. But that's not likely to remain, is it? I mean, as, as lockdowns ease, as, we, as travel becomes easier, we seem to be anticipating a, a spike across the board. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think, look, the effects are not going to be uniform or completely in one direction. I mean, there might be some positives associated with the, with the COVID crisis. As you say, lockdowns might actually reduce poaching to some extent um, in some contexts and, you know, reduce pollution and so forth. But we believe that the net impact will be strongly net negative. In the majority of, of African countries, lockdowns don't really affect the operations of poachers. And so... In the majority of scenarios in Africa, I wouldn't have thought that would have really any effect on, on reducing poaching, although it does seem as though in some isolated cases it, it has. Yeah. Something that I really appreciated about the paper was that it made a, a very succinct sort of roadmap view of what we could be looking down, you know, what barrels are we looking down as, as we come out of this. And one of the clear messages was that the revenue generation for conservation has been very ring-fenced around tourism, state funding, philanthropy, and very... Uh, limited channels in that sense. As we come out of it, there should be a, an exploration of how do we reinvigorate new and innovative revenue streams for conservation. From your estimation and from your research, what industries or what environments do you think that we should be considering in trying to make these lands viable and sustainable financially so that in the face of another pandemic or another crisis, we, we hope to be a little bit more resilient? Yeah, absolutely. So, well, firstly, 
I do think that domestic state funding of wildlife is important. And the reality is that many African countries that need to do quite a lot more in terms of protecting their own assets. And um, I think building the domestic tourism sector is important. We've seen in some countries, for example, Rwanda, quite a strong growth in the domestic tourism market. And that can really help buffer the instability of international tourism. And it could also help to build social and political support for conservation as well by growing appreciation for wildlife. Um, and then and then there's a number of other streams as well. So there's, uh, there's a big opportunity, I think, for African countries to attract international investment in, in conservation through public-private partnerships for the management of wildlife areas. So if African governments create enabling environments that make it easy for uh, an NGO or a, a private foundation to come in and get a long lease for a block of land and then manage it in partnership with the government. I think there's big scope for that and there's a lot of interest in that kind of investment. But one of the barriers is that in many countries, those enabling environments aren't there or the legal frameworks are, are not quite there. So I think if, if African governments kind of get strategic about that, they could really leverage a lot of investment and um, foreign direct investment, essentially, and expertise in, in the conservation space. That's one. And then, of course, we need a huge amount of internet. There's a strong case for international funding for conservation in Africa, for much greater funding. Many Southern and East African countries have have set aside much uh, greater areas than the international average for conservation. Um, And they need help. So Africa has a higher burden of protected areas relative to wealth than any other continent. It needs help because these these areas provide ecosystem services that help the world, such as carbon sequestration and, and several others. So there's a strong case for international investment in conservation in Africa. Africa's several East and Southern African countries in particular have set aside areas of land greater than the international average for conservation. And the big protected areas on the continent provide serious ecosystem services on behalf of the world, such as, for example, carbon sequestration. And a lot of the threats to Africa's wildlife are international in nature, for example, a demand for wildlife products. So there is a case for the world to stand up and provide more support. Also, it's a really important way of helping Africa develop. Um, you know, because protected areas can play such a strong role in, in, in development through the tourism industry, it's not just a kind of green aid, it's a means of, of promoting development. And so there's a number of ways that the world could help. One way that I think would be really constructive is through this debt for nature idea, mm-hmm. whereby African countries, which are generally, I mean, to, to varying extents, heavily burdened by debt, you know, what the... the creditor countries or what the, the countries that are lending the money could do is essentially provide debt relief to elevated domestic um, funding into conservation. So such the, the, it then becomes a, a win-win really because then the African countries are, are become obliged to, to step up their efforts. But by the same token, the world at large benefits from the ecosystem services uh, that are provided by those protected areas. And also just the existence value of knowing that the incredible megafauna and charismatic wildlife that Africa has continues to, to exist. So it's, it's potentially a real win-win. And the reduction of those debt burdens can also help Africa develop as well, much beyond, beyond wildlife. So I think that's a really exciting way. And then another way is, um, is by the international community getting a lot more serious and systematic about paying developing countries for ecosystem services. So we saw this recently where... Um, I think it was Sweden paid Gabon 
um, a big sum of money to continue to set aside blocks of, of land as wilderness. And this kind of approach, I think, has a lot of potential, particularly if you look at countries like Zambia and Tanzania that have got vast protected area networks and also rapidly growing human populations. You know, it's going to be very difficult for them to continue to set aside those enormous protected areas without help. And so one way to do it is to get the international community to pay a country like Tanzania to continue to set aside land for the purposes of carbon sequestration and biodiversity conservation so that it becomes a win-win. The world wins and also Tanzania gets some kind of payment and so can therefore justify and afford to continue to set aside such big protected area estates. For me, for the, a critical component for any one of those uh, for those opportunities to to reach maturity would be the inclusion of local communities as a stakeholder in those ventures and not just as a beneficiary from those ventures, if that makes sense. Um, I, I, I would love to see more community participation. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And actually uh, brings me to the, the whole next category of, of options, I think, and that is what we have to do as conservationists is merge the conservation and development agendas. And one way to do this is to use development funding and other funding streams to pay community members as custodians of the nature. So this is not handouts, it's not charity. Um, it's paying community members to do a really legitimate and very important job on behalf of the world. And by doing this, we protect nature, we create employment, we stimulate rural development, and it's potentially a win-win if you get the frameworks right. So this can be done through employment or it can be done through performance payments types of approaches where communities are rewarded for, for achieving conservation benchmarks, get rewarded with some kind of payment. So there's various options to achieve that, but absolutely, if we don't, if we don't more effectively merge the conservation and development agendas, we're going to struggle big time. But the opportunity is there, and we've just got to start walking the walk collectively. That is, we being the conservation community writ large, from the NGO sector to the government sector. And on that note, thank you so very much, and uh, and again, congrats on a paper. I think it's, but. Uh, I think it is quite a remarkable piece um, and we'll be talking about it on the show as well. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate it. By listening to the Art of Conservation podcast, it is acknowledged that the Art of Conservation makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy of the information featured in this podcast. The views, opinions, facts, and information and any recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only, and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at the listener's own risk. Unless specifically stated otherwise, the Art of Conservation does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast and information from this podcast should not be referenced in any way to imply such approval or endorsement. Any third-party content, comment, or opinion referenced in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions, standards, or policies of the Art of Conservation. The Art of Conservation assumes no responsibility or liability for the accuracy or completeness of the content contained in third-party content or on third-party sites referenced in this podcast or the compliance with applicable laws of such content. The Art of Conservation disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, or any other damages whatsoever arising out of any use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or any information presented in this podcast.